Thanks, Blake. Praise team. If you have your Bibles, open with me to Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 to 25 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 to 25. I remember when I was in high school, getting closer to the age of 18, there was on the horizon this thing that I knew was coming, registering for the draft, right? But as I look back on it, and even as I looked forward to it then, I didn't fear the same sense of impending doom that my father did and that the generation before him did. Registering for the draft didn't really mean the same thing to me that it did to my father and my grandfather's generation. I just want to see, just by chance, by show of hands, are there anybody in here that served in our military, in our armed forces, in any capacity? Raise your hand. Hold them high so we can see them. Keep them up. Keep them up. Now, so there's a few of them back here. Now, if you served as, uh, to, because you knew that you were either about to be drafted, you went ahead and enlisted, or you were drafted, Hold your hand up, if that was the case for any of you. So there's a few of you. Wow, okay, good. Um, conscription or being drafted into the armed services isn't something that I necessarily feared, but I knew was coming. And what we're seeing in the book of Matthew, especially in the passage that we're in this morning, is Jesus is preparing his apostles with a wartime mentality. And the, the, what he is presenting to them is something a lot more akin to signing up for the draft. In other words, you have no choice but service. Understand? You have no choice but service. Now, last week, we talked about this idea of bringing into the world a holy confrontation. That that's what we're doing. We're giving to the world a, a really, we're confronting the world of sin and its effects, both in a person's life and in the world around them. Now, this week, what we're seeing is some, are some natural consequences that come from a confrontation against the sinful world around us. So with that in mind, let's look at Matthew 10, starting in verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and the children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will have not gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough 
for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master? If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? We're in the middle of what amounts to one long teaching block from Jesus as he prepares his apostles for ministry in the public square. They're about to go out into public. It's showtime, and he's sort of preparing them for what they're about to see. And as I said last week, we saw him commissioning them to go out, and he gives them very clear instructions on where they are to go, to whom they are to go, and what they are to do when they get there. They are uh, representing him in every way. They're representing him. And so the apostles are given specific instruction to do only what Christ actually does. But in the process, they're confronting the sin of the world. The sin has had consequences on the world around us in that people die, people are sick, and so they're going out with permission to push back against sinful effects of the world by healing people, but they're also calling out individual sins. People commit individual sins against the Lord, and they're going out proclaiming the gospel. Repent, therefore, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, one might think that when you go out and you offer people that are hellbound a way of escape, you offer to them eternal life, that upon receiving this news, this good news, they'd be ecstatic. They'd jump for joy. They'd hug your neck. They throw you a party, invite you back to the neighborhood, get you to talk to all their neighbors, their friends, their family members. And perhaps it's even true that the apostles might be inclined to think, well, we're going to be celebrities. We're going to attract crowds the way Jesus attracts crowds. We know that they kind of at least somewhat thought this because of the way they approach Jesus at the end. Can we sit on the right hand when your kingdom comes? They, they're, they're convinced that they're going to be in positions of authority and power. But Jesus is going to disabuse them of any such notion to that effect. And he's going to explain to them what they should really expect on their mission. What their mission is actually going to be like. So just like the previous passage tells us quite a bit about what our mission really looks like, so does this one as we represent the mission of Christ. The first thing it tells us is that persecution is a natural consequence of fighting wolves. Persecution is a natural consequence of fighting wolves. If you look at verse 16 to 18, this is Jesus' first word of warning to them as he, as he, as he wakes them up. Now, he gives them a lot of this animal imagery in verse 16 that he opens up with, and and a lot of it is self-explanatory, but he identifies the world that they're going into as being filled with wolves. Everyone that you're going to meet is going to be filled with wolves. The military equivalent to this might be something like, I'm sending you behind enemy lines. You're going into enemy territory. In other words, everyone that is going to be surrounding you is going to be a wolf, and they're going to seek to devour you. The enemy is all around. Now, interestingly, though, he says in verse 17, beware of men, mankind, he means. Beware of mankind. These are the wolves that he's talking about in verse 16. All men. He doesn't just say, look for the beady-eyed ones. The ones that look pretty crooked and shady, you need to be a, a, avoid those people. The ones that you suspect would be wolves, avoid them. No, he puts them on guard. Beware of all men in the broadest terms. 
Now, why does he say it this way? Because if we're continuing this animal comparison from verse 16, sheep have virtually no defense mechanisms. Virtually no defense mechanisms. They're helpless. And so how does Jesus help his sheep? Well, he raises their awareness of the actual nature of mankind. You're going into a world filled with wolves. Many of these men don't want to hear what you actually have to say. And so you need to be on your guard. Now, perhaps you think I'm exaggerating. Well, Jesus, is Jesus really saying that here? Just remember that in verse 21, he's going to tell them that family members will even turn you over. Family members will even betray you. Parents, their own children. Imagine that for just a second. This is very clearly meant to be understood as a wake-up call for the disciples. You need to understand what kind of world you're actually living in. And you need to understand that you can trust no one. I think our temptation is to imagine this in the first century context, in the first century world, as we think about the apostles and the horrific deaths that most of them faced. Being boiled alive, being skinned, being thrown from a building being stoned, crucified, upside down, and beheaded. Awful, unspeakable tragedies that first century apostles faced. But their disciples faced similar fates. And I think when we read that, we're thinking about the early Roman world and the kinds of ways they treated Christians. But I think the reason we think that is mostly because we live in America where physical persecution is somewhat of a foreign concept to all of us. Think about our brothers and sisters around the world today. Eleven Christians are killed every single day for their decision to follow Jesus. And it's not only in Muslim context either, although it's more common there. Currently, North Korea stands as the foremost hostile nation toward Christianity in our world. Reports coming out of North Korea is that the government has an incentive program for anyone who exposes their neighbor as a Christian. That's according to Open Doors USA. That's what we used to do for hogs and coyotes. It's a bounty program that they've offered for the heads of Christians. I wonder if a North Korean Christian gets what Jesus means when he calls them sheep amid wolves. Think about that context for just a moment. We all want to believe the best about people, I think. We all want to believe the best about people. But Jesus' Jesus' word of warning is that wicked men will do wicked things, including but not limited to, he says here, delivering you over to courts and to have you beaten and flogged. And the reality is that all men are impacted by the fall and bent toward wickedness. So in Jesus' mind, the best way to arm the sheep against the wolves is to make them fully aware of the world and the hostile atmosphere that he's sending them into. They suspect everyone of being a wolf until proven otherwise, in other words. 
In the previous passage, they only go to the lost sheep. They only stay with people of peace, people that are friendly to the gospel message. They're to be on guard. Surely Jesus is telling them this so that they can make it on their journey and so that they can avoid undergoing all this persecution, right? I mean, so isn't he telling them this to prepare so that they can duck and dodge and dive and go everywhere and and avoid all forms of persecution? Surely he's telling them this so that they can avoid hardships along the way? Well, not exactly. He tells them in verse 18 that they they will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles for my sake. You'll be, you'll be taken before the governors and princes and Gentiles and all the for my sake. It's for me that you're going to do it. In other words, this is part of the plan. From the very beginning, this is part of the plan. Last week we saw Jesus ascending his apostles only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But here it's apparent that they're going to be witnessing to Gentiles of all stripes before very long. Near immediately, they're going to be witnessing to Gentiles. And so we know with relative certainty that as long as Jesus was on the earth, that the disciples didn't face this kind of persecution that he was talking about. But we know as soon as he left, they did. The book of Acts is filled with this story. Jesus tells them as he leaves in the book of Acts, he tells them, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's his statement that he gives to them in Acts 1.8. Is that summary over basically the whole book is summarized by that one verse. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so we see throughout the book of Acts this progression as they go from Jerusalem, then they go, you guessed it, Judea and Samaria, and then they go eventually to the ends of the earth. And so we see Paul going to the ends of the earth where he's actually going before Gentiles and governors and kings and princes, and he's testifying to the gospel where he's actually trying to persuade them to become Christians. We see the Jews, the apostles, being flogged in the synagogues, being beaten, But how is it that they get there? How do they get outside of Jerusalem? Is it because they all sat down and they decided the best strategy for us for the the foreseeable future since Jerusalem has now been conquered with the gospel is to make our way out across the world? Let's start going to tell people now is the time. No, that's absolutely not what happened. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, Luke tells us this. And then arose, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. It's persecution. I mentioned last week that two ways we push back against a sinful culture is through proclamation and through demonstration. But another way is through martyrdom. Through persecution. So the torturer, as he is putting to death or torturing this Christian, might think to himself, wait a minute, why is this guy willing to go to the grave confessing this? Why is he willing to be beaten? Why isn't he persuaded by our sword? 
to save his own life. Maybe it's because he's really a citizen of another kingdom and he knows his life doesn't stop at death. Since this is true, then what is Jesus, what's his recommendation for them to do? What does he recommend for them to do? He tells them at the very beginning of verse 16, be as wise serpents and as innocent as doves. Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. The serpent has this appearance of craftiness. He's always been seen as crafty. You may recall all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, there's another serpent that makes his way in. And the Bible, the biblical author there tells us in Genesis, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The word that he uses there, crafty, this is the same word that Jesus uses here, be as wise as serpents. Be crafty as serpents. No doubt when Jesus uses this word, their minds are thrown all the way back to the garden. The word there means shrewd or cunning. Someone who is understanding the way the world works, essentially. See, the serpent is always cautious of everyone. Understands that he can get in trouble. He's quick to flee to preserve his own life. The serpent is making a careful analysis of the situation that he's in. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is don't be helpless. Don't be naive. Don't be easily fooled. But it's clear that he doesn't mean to be venomous and tempt people. Right? Because he then follows that up with as innocent as doves. So instead, the disciples to maintain his own innocence and be harmless like a dove. R.T. France puts it like this. The disciples' cunning is to be directed not to harming their opponents, but to their own survival and the commendation of the gospel. They They need the cunning of snakes without the venom. The cunning of snakes without the venom. But when you send sheep out into a sinful world to fight against wolves with the gospel, what, is, what are the natural consequences? What are the natural consequences? The wolves turn and attack the sheep. But often you wouldn't know this is a cultural or natural consequence of being a Christian when you look at our culture, mostly in America. We're often very soft. We're easily offended when schools stop praying before football games and opt for a moment of silence instead. We jump to social media, pound the keyboard in anger. This is persecution, and we shouldn't stand for it. Let's set aside a very loose definition of persecution for just a second. And let's just call that persecution. The question really should be, we should be asking ourselves, is what did we expect was going to happen in this world? How did we think things were going to turn out? How did we think it was going to be? What did we think America was going to be forever? America isn't exempt from being the land of the wolf and the home of the wolf. 
Not according to Jesus' words. But are we spending most of our time lamenting the fact that our corner of the world isn't what it used to be? The reason that schools used to pray before games, let's just take that as an example. The reason that schools used to pray before games or even open their assembly in prayer as they did you know, back in the 50s, 60s, and even later is mostly because the people in positions of authority were Christians. And now they no longer are. So if anything, it should tell us that probably what happened more than anything is this isn't merely some satanic plot designed to persecute Christians as much as it is probably us resting on our heels, being comfortable with power. And thinking to ourselves, we've got our little corner of the world nailed down. There's no wolves in our pasture. No, no, no. We've secured everything here. This is a wolf-free zone. Everybody here, everybody that I know is a Christian. Everybody around me is a Christian. Look at our school. We pray before games. And what happened? We stop evangelizing the lost. We stop sharing the gospel. To the point where people that were really comfortable sharing the gospel years and years and decades ago, now we look at our churches and we're very uncomfortable talking to people that are lost. We're very uncomfortable gathering up the courage that it takes to share the gospel with somebody else. We're very uncomfortable pushing back against sin. We had a wolf-proofed corner of the pasture, or so we thought. And now that the wolves have taken over or are taking over, we're lamenting the way it used to be. And we're hoping that the wolves are going to play nice. But wolves are going to wolf. That's what they do. That's all they know. Second thing that we should expect as we represent Christ is that persecution results in supernatural provision. Persecution results in supernatural provision. You can see his, his words of encouragement there in 19 and 20. He sort of breaks the tension a little bit and gives a little bit of encouragement to the apostles in verses 19 and 20. And he tells them not to worry about how, the, how they're going to do it or what they're going to say. Um, now, when a military pilot begins training for his, his exercises, one of the many forms of training that he goes through is a kind of boot camp that basically prepares him for getting caught. Many soldiers will go through this very same kind of thing, but what happens if you get captured? And so they go through a kind of boot camp, if you were, if, if you will, that, that prepares them for what it's like to be caught. What tactics do you use in interrogation? Uh, how do you communicate with other prisoners or with the guards or whatever? And so this is essentially what Jesus is preparing his disciples for. The time will come when they are captured by the wolves. But do you see what he tells them? He tells them, you're going to be captured, but there's no prior training for it. You're going to be captured, but I'm not going to spend any time telling you what to do when you're there. Instead, he just says, don't worry about it. 
The day is going to come in verse 19 when they deliver you over and uh, but, but do not be anxious, he says. Can you imagine if the American military trained their soldiers or their pilots in this way? You're going to be captured. Don't worry about it. I'm sure you'll think of something. You just keep this little earpiece with you. We'll just, we'll tell you what to say. It'll be fine. You'll be okay. Jesus' logic is that both in manner and content. Look at that. Manner and content. He says how you are to speak or what you are to say. How and what. The manner and the content will be given to you in that hour. And so although there's no preparation or training required, all the grace that you need, all the grace that you require to respond to your persecutors in the time that you require it will be adequately provided for you. Church history tells us of a man named Polycarp. Polycarp. I want to name our kid Polycarp, but Andrea said no. Church history tells us of this man, Polycarp. He was a disciple of the Apostle John. So one of John's disciples. He wrote tons. So we have lots of his writings. And he became the bishop of the church at Smyrna. In about 160 AD, he was martyred for his faith. And when he was finally captured, the authorities said to him, there was a dialogue between he and the authorities, and the authorities said this to him, Have respect for your old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent and say, down with the atheists. Atheist was the term that they gave to Christians because they didn't believe in the Roman gods. So they were atheists. So he says, repent and say, down with all the Christians. Polycarp replied, 86 years have I served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and savior? I have wild animals here, the proconsul said. I will throw you to them if you do not repent. Call them. It's unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to turn to what is evil. I would be glad, though, to be changed from evil to righteousness. If you despise the animals, I will have you burned. You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and is then extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. Wow. I wonder, do you think Polycarp had the maturity of a martyr before he was called to be one? Do you think 20 years Prior to this, an angel or maybe Jesus showed up to him in a vision and said, okay, Polycarp, grab your feather and your inkwell and a piece of paper, and I'm going to tell you what to say. Write it down word for word, and be sure to memorize it. This is really going to stick it to him. This is really going to give a powerful testimony to what you believe. Go ahead and put it down on paper, and don't forget, you must memorize it. You got 20 years giving you plenty of lead time. No, I don't think so. I think just as Jesus promised his apostles, Polycarp was given the words to say, 
at the time to say it when his life was required of him. But I don't know about you, but I want the peace of a martyr without actually having to be one. I would love to respond to everyone in perfect wisdom and patience and fortitude and pithiness without actually having to be tied to a stake and doused in kerosene. That's what I want. Unfortunately, that's not how God has engineered his provision. In any capacity. Jesus tells the apostles that, or the disciples to, to pray for their daily bread. So in any kind of provision, he gives provision when it is required. I don't think this only happens when someone's about to kill you. I think it happens anytime you're carrying out Christ's mission making disciples, evangelizing the lost, teaching them to obey all that he has commanded of us? How does the evangelist have the appropriate responses to all of the antagonists? How does the evangelist do that? How does he respond appropriately to all the antagonists? Does he sit in his room and study and, and, and figure out all the appropriate responses to anything somebody might give to him, that somebody might offer to him? So that he puts into his mind all the best responses to really lay them low. And then he moves out into the community once he has them all memorized. And any response that comes up, he thinks to himself, I'm ready for that one. Here it is. Oh, I'm ready for that one too. You can't fire a question at me that I don't know the answer to. No. He simply goes and the Lord supplies his needs. Now, does that mean that we don't study and prepare? No, absolutely not. Don't be ridiculous. The Spirit's also there with us in preparation as well. But if you're sitting on your rear end waiting for an appropriate level of knowledge before you begin evangelizing, before you begin discipling, and before you begin providing a witness for Christ in the community, then, you're, then not only are you doing it wrong, but you're never actually going to move out and do anything. Because believe it or not, you never reach that point where you actually feel like, okay, I can answer all questions now. You're never going to get past the point of feeling inadequate to do what God has called you to do. It's never going to happen. And you may think that now. And then you grow in knowledge a little bit. And then you think, well, maybe just a little bit more. And so you get a little bit more. And, well, I still need to know a little bit more. And so you get a little bit more. And then all of a sudden you're puffed up and arrogant sitting on your pew doing nothing. Because it's always a little bit more. The last thing that I think we see we should expect as we serve Christ is that persecution is hatred by proxy. Persecution is hatred by proxy. So if you see what Jesus is saying in verses 21 to 25, he comes back from encouraging them. There's the brief moment of encouragement. He steps out of that and he says, uh, back to what we're you know, waking you up, essentially. He, he comes back and he, he, he reminds them of the world that he's sending them out to and just how treacherous that world actually is. Family members will betray other family members. The American Civil War is said to be the bloodiest conflict that America has ever fought, especially for American soldiers. More than 600,000 people died in the Civil War against a population of just 34 million people. 
So today, it would be essentially like losing 5.2 million people of our population, if you can imagine that. But the Civil War is often called the Brothers' War because of the way the battle lines were drawn across family members. In the end, the war that Jesus is preparing his apostles and, and us, his disciples, for is a war not of civility, but a civil war. A war that's divided across family lines, whose battle lines cut across entire families. A war of ideology. And it's ultimately going to put all of us to the test. It's going to test our allegiance to Christ. And it's going to demand that our allegiance be stronger to Christ than to our own family. Jesus says essentially this in Luke 14, 26, but he turns it the other way. And he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He's referencing this exact same sentiment, but the other way around. You as a disciple, where are your allegiances? Disciples will be betrayed by their own parents, by their own children. And if your allegiance is more to your family than to Christ, then you're not a disciple. These are issues that Christians around the world face every single day. And I dare say few of us, though not all, very few of us will ever come close to. What is Jesus' strategy for his disciples through this. In verse 23, he tells them, be on the move. Keep going from town to town. If one town rises up in persecution, flee to the next town. This notion, this idea that we've come up with that maybe persecution would be a good thing for this country is rubbish. It's absolute hogwash if you've ever heard anyone say that. No one in history has ever desired persecution like that. In fact, Jesus even told them to flee, to run, go from town to town. And then he tells them at the end of verse 23, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. You will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now Jesus is going to make a, a statement kind of like this seven times in the Gospel of Matthew, this being one of the first, referring to the Son of Man coming. And so these statements like that, the Son of Man coming, has puzzled people for centuries, for, for millennia even, as they've sought to understand exactly what he's talking about here. When is he talking about the Son of Man? The disciples, the apostles, won't make it through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So some have said, well, what he's talking about is until they finish their work. He's going to catch up with them down the road. So he's just saying to them, you, you go, you get ahead of me, you go from town to town, you won't have finished going through all the towns, and I'm, I'll catch up to you eventually. Some people have thought he's saying that. Others have said the, the apostles won't have finished doing the work of, that Jesus has put him, them here to do until he rises from the dead. That's what he's talking about. That's the Son of Man coming, you're rising from the dead. Others have said, no, the apostles won't have finished until the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. That's what he's talking about. You won't have finished evangelizing all the towns of Israel until 
the temple is destroyed in 70 AD. More recently, people have suggested that Jesus, what Jesus is talking about is the second coming. You want to finish any of this until I, I come again the second time. I think there are good arguments to be made for each of these, and we'll spend a little bit more time on this idea later on in another passage we'll get to later on. But some of you may have in mind already what you think the interpretation of that passage is, and that's fine. I'm not here to convince you one way or the other or persuade you in any way. But I think there is some truth to all of these perspectives. I think there's a little bit of truth to each one of them. When he uses the phrase, before the Son of Man comes, that's most likely a reference to Daniel chapter 7 and really about verse 14 or so, where this, this Son of Man figure comes before the Ancient of Days and is crowned with the authority of the kingdom. So he's given the authority of the kingdom. So when, when does Jesus then receive the authority of the kingdom? That's the million-dollar question. When does that happen? Well, that's a complicated answer. We definitely know that he received something at the resurrection, for sure. He tells his disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So there's obviously some authority that has been passed from the Ancient of Days to him, where he wasn't allowed to go certain places, and he told his apostles not to earlier, and now he tells them, go everywhere. But we also know he received some type of enthronement on the cross. He tells Caiaphas this in Matthew chapter 26. Here he says the apostles won't have made it through all the towns of Israel until the Son of Man comes. And, and he's preparing them for persecution that they didn't face until after he left in the book of Acts. And so I think it's possible he's referencing the collapse of the temple that the Jews had in uh, 70 AD. So the Son of Man coming is referring to a time when it becomes obvious that his kingdom has replaced the Jewish sacrificial system and that they'll be alive, many of them, for that. But then we also know that Jesus' kingdom isn't fully consummated until his second coming and that he will reign with us forever on the new earth. And he'll tell his disciples exactly that in chapter 19, verse 28. So part of the reason that the timeline and the confusion around that phrase has been placed all throughout history in different uh, aspects of time is probably because there's a little bit of truth in each one of those. The fulfillment of Christ's kingdom we know has already happened, and it has not yet happened. We know he's already on the throne, and he is at the right hand of God, and he is ruling and reigning, and he has yet to sit on an internal throne. He has yet to set up his kingdom on earth, in the new earth. He has yet to raise all the dead from the grave. But his disciples are to understand, I think, that they will very much see a day when his rule and reign becomes very apparent. And they won't have completed their mission, even to all the houses of Israel, when they see that day, I think is the point. But why is this a foregone conclusion? That those that engage in this kind of fight would be intact in this kind of way. And it's because the world of wolves hates Jesus. That's the simple answer. The world of wolves hates Jesus. You will be turned over. You will be hated by people that you would think would be your closest allies. And why? Because the people that seek your life 
hate you because you are a proxy for Jesus. And if they call Jesus the devil, what do you think they're going to do to you? What then does it say about us when we earnestly desire to be a part of the in crowd? We really don't want to be thought of as strange in society. We want Christians to be and Christianity to be accepted and cool and hip. We even change some of our churches and the worship that goes on in our churches and the structure of that worship so that we might be perceived as a cool place to be. Changing it all for people that aren't even Christians. For wolves. What then does it say about us when we shy away from providing a witness to people because we're not sure of what they might think about us? The question that it should make us ask is in verse 24 and 25, do we honestly think that we deserve better than Christ? We serve a Savior who died on our behalf, who though he lived a perfect life and was not worthy of death, went to the cross anyway. The Bible says all things were made through him and without him nothing was made that has been made. And so that means that as he has the cross on his back and as he's walking up the hill to Calvary, the people that are surrounding him, that are spitting on him, he knew their names. He knew their parents. He knew their cousins and brothers and siblings. He knew all of their family members the very muscle tissues that it took to work up saliva in their mouth and spit it on his face, he created. And he went to the cross anyway, knowing everything about those individuals. And yet he still had the gall to say, Father, Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The gospel we believe is a perfect Christ who suffered for us, who suffered the wrath of God so we don't have to, and then rose again on the third day. Now, if you're a follower of Christ, you have been automatically assigned a post in the war. You have been conscripted. You got voluntold where you would be. If you're his disciple, you don't have a choice as to whether you're in the war or not. So if you feel that you don't have to fight, maybe you think you can simply lead a quiet life at work, never engaging the people around you in the workplace with the gospel, never having gospel conversations, Maybe you've chosen to let your kids determine if they need to go to church or not because well, you don't want to force it down their throats. Maybe you've opted to sit out in silence while your friends pursue sin after sin, never pushing back on their lifestyle or giving them an alternative. If you feel you don't actually have to fight this war through verbal witness, it raises the question of what kingdom are you really a citizen for what kingdom are you really fighting? 
Friends, we should not expect friendship with this world. If people want to be, if people don't want to be allies of Christ, then they're not going to be at peace with me. At least not always. That doesn't give us an excuse to be a jerk. Sometimes we can scream persecution and know it's really we're just being a jerk. We can present winsome arguments. We can be loving. We can be kind. And we must be those things. But we shouldn't expect friendship with the world. We should quit crying over the way things used to be. For one, it's forgetting the problems that really did exist back then. That's one of the big problems with nostalgia. As the saying goes, I'm not nostalgic now, but man, I used to be. That's one of the problems with nostalgia. You forget the way things really used to be and how things were really hard. But it's also tantamount to complaining about the world that God has actually put you in. Do you realize that God has put you in this place at this time for a reason? He didn't put somebody else there. He put you there in this place at this time for a reason, at your work, in your job, at your position, for a reason. To complain about the world is the way it is, is really to say, God, you made a mistake. We should charge into this world that God has actually given to us. Where has he put you? What gifts has he given you? Who has he put around you? That's the world that you actually live in. We should be aware it's filled with wolves. But the world you actually live in is also filled with people who are going to rejoice over the proclamation of the gospel. And he's put you in this place at this time for a reason. What are you doing about it? Pick up a sword and fight. In Jesus' name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for courage, for guidance, but Lord, more than anything, for a deep and profound admiration for your holy name. That we would be so set on fire by all of the many things that you are that when it comes to providing a witness to the community around us, we would not bat an eye. That we see our life as Polycarp did, as many martyrs that came before us have, that is to be lived for your purposes, for your kingdom, and that to die is gain. Lord, make us into that people in Jesus' name. Amen.